so uh, Boomer, welcome to the show. Uh, it's great to have you here on Way the Leader. And um, I'm just happy to be here, Justin. Like it's, uh, <laughs> we have so many great conversations, and so this is one where we're actually going to record it, and let's see what happens. Wonderful. I I'm excited. So well, okay. Well, uh, for people who are listening, uh, give us a little bit of insight about yourself. Uh, so professionally speaking, who are you in one sentence? In one sentence, professionally speaking, I am curious, period. Um, but let me kind of explore that a little bit more. Um, because if somebody gives you that answer, either they're, um, either they don't have anything behind it or, you know, there's probably too much behind it to explain uh, in one sentence. And so in that case, I am probably the latter. And uh, so if you were to say, I am curious is the the first sentence. Um, The second sentence is I am an investor um, in the sense that I help build businesses across predominantly the domain of health. Um, I, run businesses, I own businesses in that field. And so if you're going to put a label on me, you can either choose curious or an investor, but those two will work. Wonderful. Fantastic. The question is, is who is Boomer Anderson outside of that, you know, personally? Well, how would you describe yourself in one sentence? I am curious. That's it. And I think the one I kind of hate this term, but I'm going to use it. The one thread that has guided me throughout all of my life has been curiosity. And that could be curiosity from uh, a health perspective, a curiosity from a work perspective. And that sort of governed how I've chosen my vocations in many ways uh, and curiosity from a technology perspective, et cetera. So I am uh, curious and that also is something that comes through in my personal life as well. So Bessie, we've already shared wives names on, on this show, right? Uh, Bessie's my wife and she knows that the one thing that governs Boomer more than anything or me more than anything is curiosity. And I have an unsatiable curiosity to learn more about this experience that we have on this little pale blue dot and this, you know, thing that we call a universe. I, I think that's why we get along so well. Also, uh, my curiosity yeah. is very high, and yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's, I, I mean, uh, Justin, that's like Justin, one of the things that you and I always banter. It's just funny in talking with you and trying to structure a conversation with you because uh, it, it's this could go in any multitude of directions. Like we could start talking about multiverse theory or string theory or whatever. And I would be perfectly comfortable going there with you. And so when you sent me across these topics, I'm like, Oh, it's funny because like, I know this is what Justin does, but I've never really, um, you know, you and I have never really put format to it before. So usually mm-hmm. it's, I'm in the back of a car or walking around Amsterdam or whatever. And I call you and, or you call me and we're like, Hey, let's just catch up. And you know, that looks like kind of topic ping pong, or I guess pong would be the better analogy for mm-hmm. an hour or so. And then, you know, we have to hang up the phone because we have things that we have to do um, <laughs> in order to keep the lights on. Right. <laughs> I, you know, you think, I think about that and I'm like, I'm just going to call Boomer quickly and have a catch up. It's been a while, you know, and then like, you know, a few hours later, I'm like, crap, I've got clients, I've got to go. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I don't want to go. Um, so yeah, I, I hear you on that. And I think what last time we, we went into everything from, you know, all kinds of things like coaching and testing to pull-ups and, you know, 
yeah, there was a lot there. There was a lot. And I still, I'm very interested in a lot of your, um, you know, a lot of your experiences because you've had exposure to some pretty um, interesting people to go down curiosity rabbit holes with. And so I think this is where, so, you know, like let's give this, this conversation a little bit more of a direction and go in the direction of um, leadership and self-care and how they influence each other. And the reason why is because I'm always motivated by this idea of um, the human element to managing groups and, mm-hmm. rather than, you know, this, this aspect that I hear all the time where people say things like, oh, leadership is about inspiring people with vision. I'm like, is it is it really because that sounds like you're making it that you need to be the shining light that everybody follows and what is leadership you know because i have different ideas and so you know let's draw that out of you like sure blood from a stone so and let me give credit where credit is due here i'm a great artist in these fields i'm not a a leadership coach by any means Uh, and i i tend to my approach is usually orthogonal in the sense that I'll look for a source from even like the bottom of a trash can. Right. And as long as it leads to some sort of uh, conclusion that helps me in my analysis and adds to my sort of lattice work of knowledge, then I'm happy to include it. And so that could be a comic book that could be uh, whatever. Uh, In the case of leadership, there's a gentleman by the name of Brandon Craig who um, I probably don't give enough credit to, but one of his, I guess, I'm not sure if he would call himself an employee, but one of his team members is Bob Hurd. And Bob is this um, incredible human being that I met at a health conference when I was going to the bar uh, just to have a drink after a long day, which is kind of funny going to the bar at a health conference. And this was back when I did drink. So it was uh, an interesting situation. And Bob came up to me and he spoke to me in a way that nobody has ever spoken to me before. And so Bob and I got to know each other and he introduced me to Brandon. And Brandon um, has given a lot to my uh, sort of thoughts around leadership. And one of the things that he, or the way that, um, or it's sort of my adapted version of that definition of leadership is, leadership is the ability to create something that did not or would not exist otherwise. And so in that sense, you can imagine that, uh, look, I, I read the Harvard Business Review. I read MIT Sloan's management uh, books, those kind of things, right? Or the magazine. But I'm not necessarily coming about this from the uh, epistemology, right? So I, I, I'm interested in the theories of it. I'm very interested in, you know, some of the, systems that come out of the study of the of the theories but i'm perhaps taking more of an ontological ontological approach here and so leadership is that ability to create something that would not otherwise happen and so that actually encompasses a little bit more than teams Um, it encompasses also self-leadership in various domains other than what traditionally people define, usually talk about leadership in the context of work. Mm. I, I very much resonate with that because I, I usually find that leadership starts with self, you know, and if you can't take responsibility for yourself or necessarily like organize your time and manage yourself, it's, it's very seldom that you can actually manage other people. And usually those become bad managers as well. Um, and, 
you know, though the one thing that I, I remember stuck out to me was this idea that uh, bad leaders can only be distinguished from good leaders with uh, high churn or high turnover of good employees. You know, good yeah. employees will leave underneath a bad manager, a bad leader, and that's it. That's the only difference really that you can tell. So that's a big, a big deal, um, you know, about that, that idea of leading self. And it's very interesting that you talk about leadership in terms of like also achieving uh, like a creation. Let's say mm -hmm. so. That's I think that's also uh, you know worthwhile um, to contribute to the conversation of leadership. That's a big yeah. Point. And I think just to kind of challenge you on that that point about good employees leaving, uh, the churn rate, of course, that is a, a very valuable metric uh, both as manager and leader to to measure. But in my mind, a very good employee uh, at at some point will leave you because mm -hmm. they are very good. And it, like my job as, you know, if you're going to title me leader is to, um, you know, prepare for that uncertainty, but also it's, you know, can I just make the help these people create these people into being, uh, you know, something that uh, they may not have seen before or something that they're working towards. And I think that is, um, you know, good people will leave. It's just a question of frequency, right? So if your churn rate is hundred percent in three months, yeah, that, you probably got a fucking problem to look at. Right. <laughs> um, but like if your churn rate is, you know, one person every three years and yeah, over the course of, you know, a decade, you've had hundred percent turnover over your, um, of your direct reports, I think that's acceptable, especially if you look at the case, not that I love Jack Welsh's leadership style at all, uh, but like Jack Welsh is the guy who everybody thinks as is, or has been prophesized as sort of a great leader, right? In corporate okay. America. And Jack Welsh, for those who don't know him, he's the um, former CEO of General Electric, and he was a CEO for like 10, 15 years. He developed a name called Neutron Jack, which uh, tells you a little bit about his leadership style. And one of that, one of those reasons is that he used to get rid of like the bottom 10% of people every single year. But mm. as um, Jack Welsh kind of moved through the ranks, uh, a lot of his top deputies would leave and go and take positions at other organizations. And so, uh, you know, when they go and take positions of leadership at other organizations and they get uh, a CEO position, right? Can you blame that person for taking that opportunity to and leaving you because they've now been groomed to do so? I think that's actually a good sign of a leader. But again, uh, you know, churn is all relative. Like that time frame that you look at churn is very important. No, 100%. I, I do agree with you on that point. And uh, uh, 100%, the, the concept of a good leader for me that I put in there as well is a good leader actually creates other leaders. So you are going to have good people, good employees leaving. You can't just keep them for, you know, infinity, but yeah. rather this idea of like, okay, it's time for you to go. And, you know, that leader sees that person leaving as the right time, the right path, the right extension, you know, whatever you want to frame it as. But it's it's clearly like this job has nothing more to offer you in terms of growth. It is better for you. And that's, I think the human side or the human elements of leadership is this idea of it doesn't benefit me for you to leave. It benefits you. And I want that. Mm -hmm. Exactly. You know? Yeah. And, and you, you, I get into this conversation a lot with other leaders who are like, but it's a pain in my ass to fill that role. That person was doing their job great. Now they've left. Now I've got to train up another. Why should I continually train up another person? And reframing that around and saying like, because that's 
you're a leader and that's what leaders do essentially. Um, you know, where do you find the pleasure, the growth in this aspect as well? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and the pride in yourself. And so some people don't have that. Some, some leaders don't necessarily um, find that they want to do that mm-hmm. and that's okay. And, but they wouldn't necessarily stand out. So when you ask people like, who are the top three people who stand out in your mind as being the great leaders that you were under, great team managers, great CEOs, whatever that you've been under. I guarantee hundred percent that they'll point to that quality. These people yeah. built me up to the point where I could leave and they exactly. waved me away quite happily. You know, they were like, yeah, sure. Here's some references, resumes, whatever, you know, here's some contacts that might be useful to you. You know, they, they were interested in your success and that's very much a human trait. So, yeah. Absolutely. I think like you say that right now, and I can think of three people um, off the top of my head that have had, have using the definition of leadership that I uh, gave earlier, which is leaders are those who created something that wouldn't have otherwise been there. Um, They created something in me that would not have otherwise been there. And that started the first person I thought of started when I was 19. Um, the, obviously there's my father who would have started much younger, but I'm going to exclude him because I think some people default to their parents because it's an easier answer. Mm -hmm. But, um, there's this person who started when I was 19, uh, actually got me my job on wall street and then my first boss on wall street. And then, uh, currently the person who serves as our chief science officer at transcriptions, right? He's, um, almost he shifted my perspective on leadership more than almost everybody else. Uh, and so we can go through all three of those people and discuss the whys, but it just immediately there's a common thread there that they knew that I would not be around perpetually, but they still invested the time, uh, sought to it that I got the best um, experience for Boomer, this avatar um, going through uh, whatever I was going through. And then we still keep in touch. Like we're still very good friends. And so there's, uh, there's an element of that, that, that common characteristic whereby it's, um, it's a commitment. It's a non-reciprocal commitment to making uh, you better, meaning that um, there's no expectation that I am going to then return the favor to them, uh, even though I would, and I have, and in certain cases, like you can count the multiples of capital invested, right? Uh, but I, I think there's a commitment there in good leaders that they don't expect that to be returned. I think that's a, yeah. I, I mean, as you're saying that, of course, it's like sparking all my own experiences as well, where I've had the same thing. And that's, that's this is the danger of you and I talking, man, is that it's just gonna, <laughs> like, this could go any multitude of ways. So I'm gonna allow you to put some guardrails on this conversation. <laughs> okay. uh, and we'll kind of go in whatever direction you want. And I will try and chime in when you think it's necessary. <laughs> no, 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 no. I absolutely want to hear you know, all of these things from you. So that's the, I mean, that, that's the point, but uh, I can't help but chime in because it's just great conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Well, let's, let's, let's go to the next one. I, I, I like to ask this question what are the points of leadership that you were terrible at when you started? Because we're talking about this idea of being honest, looking at weaknesses that you've obviously had time to improve, um, you know, and so to your mind, um, what were, what was one or two things that stood out for you that you really struggled with when you started taking on a role, uh, in charge of multiple people? 
Sure. Uh, number one would be delegation. And with delegation, of course, comes communication. Uh, mm -hmm. And number two is understanding uh, that other people saw the world differently than I did. And actually, uh, let me explore number one, because I think that's relatively quick uh, and has, if you look at the under underlying issue there, it was a fundamental issue of trust, right? And so uh, when I first started building teams, which was probably in my mid-20s, I had this freak situation whereby I was... Um, I was sent from New York to Singapore to help fix a fixed income business at a bulls racket investment bank. Uh, and my job there uh, was essentially to help companies and governments uh, raise money within the region. So anywhere, picture anywhere from India all the way to Indonesia was my territory. And that's really 13 countries. Um, and so one of the things that you, you do in that business is you travel a lot. And I got fairly good at presenting myself to, you know, ministers of finance and uh, heads of companies there and kind of telling the story of why they should go raise money, particularly in the debt capital markets. And it got, there was a sort of freak incident where my boss at the time, who was one of those three people I mentioned earlier, got promoted to a job to go to London. And they left me in Singapore by myself, really, with one junior and said, here are 13 countries. We need you to go figure out how to make money here. And I'm 26 years old, right? And so I'm 26 years old. I barely out of college. The only thing I really cared about at that point was probably how to work hard, how to sleep less, how to look good naked, right? Uh, but I also cared about my career. And, you know, I was now forced to the situation of like, how do you build a team? And, uh, and I was used to, at this point, doing everything myself because my boss had the junior and he was traveling all over the place and he would use all the junior resources. And so that initial moment whereby I'm now handing over uh, tasks, projects, entire transactions to somebody who I've had limited experience with working with directly was frightening. And so just learning that sometimes the hard way, uh, that delegation is absolutely essential because without delegation, there's zero growth. Uh, in fact, it would cap your, now there's tools and technology to do it if you're in this sort of creator space, but uh, there's very limited ways to like perpetually scale if you cannot delegate. So delegation was certainly an area that I struggled with. Uh, number two, uh, was this idea, and this actually didn't happen to me until after I left finance, was this idea that other people perceive the world in, in a way that I don't necessarily uh, perceive and they have different priorities. And what I mean by this is that within uh, the realms of bulge bracket finance, investment banking, if you will, if for some reason um, the person didn't work, I would just get another one, right? It, it was like, churn them and burn them. And granted, I, I didn't have that much turnover on my team, at least after the first couple of months. Uh, but the attitude was more, okay, this person is going to be shoved in here. And no matter if they're a square peg going into a round hole, we're going to sand them down sometimes brutally fast, and they're going to fit into that hole, right? Um, but in the case of 
when you leave finance, you have this whole other element that you have to deal with, which is scarcity of resources, right? I don't have a multi-billion dollar balance sheet behind me to pay for the best talents in the world. And so I have to then, uh, in certain cases, you're handed a, a team and say like, hey, work with this, or it might be the best resource that you can afford at the time. Mm-hmm. And so learning that in certain cases, this team's priorities had absolutely nothing to do uh, with the work that they were doing at that particular time. And very much so they were to-do list oriented people. I'm going to do this, 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 and this, and don't try to reach me after 5 p.m. because I'm done for the day. And so learning how to deal with, um, and not just deal with, but like how to because deal with gives like a negative connotation about these people. There's certainly no negatives about that, that there's just learning how to acclimate and be adaptive uh, to those particular situations uh, has been one of the biggest struggles. And still to this day is something that I'm working on, right? Because you would think in certain instances that if somebody's given equity in a company that they're going to want to give everything to the company, they might not actually be the founder of the company, right? And so, you know, why would they do so? And so, you know, it's something that I'm continually reminding myself of. And, uh, and again, all of these, I think the danger in saying that I've arrived at an answer is that you actually shut off to the experience. And so when I approach any of these challenges, I remain open to the idea that I'm not complete yet. And so when it comes to delegation, I know there's areas that I can still work on there. When it comes to learning how to work with other people, definitely. And so, you know, I'm not trying to paint myself as, you know, Hercules here or, uh, you know, the perfect circle drawn by Giotto um, for the Pope, right? And so I don't try to be that person. It's just, you know, for me, it's, all right, I've made progress in these areas, certainly, but I'm remaining open to the idea that there's more progress to be made. Mm-hmm. 100%. I mean, I think, well, there's so many things that you just touched on there. Okay, let's let's back up a little bit. So um, with regard to the delegation thing, I mean, you know, as you say, it's it's always, there's always something to improve with delegation, but how did you get it to a place where it was acceptable or not painful? You know, how did you, what did you do to improve your delegation? So this initially came through two steps and the first of which I actually heard somebody who was a guest on some podcast episode. And that at that time I was listening to a lot of Tim Ferriss. So I would guess that it probably came from his podcast, but, or it was like Gary Vee or one of these people. Right. Mm -hmm. And so it was one of these situations where whoever the guest was on that show, they said, it is absolutely foolish of you to think that you're going to get when you delegate something that you're going to get it back in a hundred percent of the way that you want it. Right. Because that initially is going to take a whole lot of time to do. So trying to get settled or be satisfied with 70%. And so that was one of the first things that happened. I was like, okay, can I find a way to get satisfied or at least not blow my top when uh, somebody hands me back something that I would have perceived as a C minus average. Right. Uh, And so the, and and so getting to, to that point was the first big step. And the second big step for me was a general realization 
or a more of an acceptance, uh, you know, in, um, in spiritual realms, they may call this like swallowing the poison an acceptance that I needed to train and invest time in training that person because they, they aren't me, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. And this actually leads to a third point um, is that, uh, you know, the, sort of the swallowing of poison and investing time in that training and that training up front is quite a lot of time, right? I, we're training people right now where I spend on our, on average with some of them an hour a day, right? And that's a lot of time for a person yeah. who works eight, 12 hours a day. It's still, you know, one, one eighth of your day is quite a bit of time to invest in somebody. If you're doing multiple at once, it can get quite challenging. Uh, and so investing time in the person. And then the third point is recognizing that my perspective may not be the right one and that's okay. And so what I actually have started developing and I've become much better at is asking the question, like, or, or trying to put people where their strengths are and saying, this person may know it better than me and accepting the fact that I may not have the right answer. And that's okay. You know, that goes back to obviously your second point where you were talking about, um, you know, shaping uh, or understanding that different people have different mindsets and shaping your mindset to that acceptance. Um, and one of the, so uh, to touch on your other point, there's, there's a, a model that lives in my brain rent free because I love it so much. It's situational leadership with the idea of um, one of the gears that a leader needs to have is almost teaching, yep. you know, and that, creates that clear communication, this clear expectations rather than just do this. And then when it doesn't come back the expected way, you know, the lack of communication really was the issue, the lack mm -hmm. of, um, you know, that, that standard being communicated as well, or let's say the, the vision or the goal or whatever, you know, communication is, is usually a big deal. And, um, you know, I keep saying the big deal, like it could point it out to me that I keep communicating. It's a big deal. It's a big deal. Um, and, uh, so now I'm very conscious of this fact. Uh, the the concept that teaching this person, the investment mm -hmm. of time into this person means that you can actually go hands off and trust that person a lot more, a lot faster than, than you would in other cases. Um, so I think that that's uh, what you said, you know, really resonated with me. And then the second thing that you said was obviously this concept that's um, um, coming back to um, what is acceptable and this person might may know it more than me. And it comes back to leadership again, where you, you constantly think about this idea of uh, I am not a designer. This person is a designer. So let me give yeah. it to them to design. And I don't know what's better for design, but you know, let's, let's run with this. Is it, is it a, an acceptable design? Yeah, I think so. And starting out with that in mind, that does this serve the project better than what I've got in my head? And most yeah. of the time it will. They'll, they'll have visions that, you know, so when I ask people to do a job, I'm like, this is the kind of thing that I'm going for. And it's almost like that Napoleon, um, you know, Napoleon Bonaparte is famous for having uh, restructured the military into almost like splinter cells of, uh, you know, little commando groups of people who all knew what the greater goal was, but all went about it and achieved it in different ways because it was a lot easier and much more efficient to manage a system like that. And it's almost like that. That's what you've got to do. 
What's the, what's the main goal? Okay, cool. My little team here, let's go. And if it's one person or two people, it doesn't matter, but they're going to go and try and achieve the goals. If you've communicated that goal. Absolutely. Absolutely. Which is incredible. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, um, I like this question a lot, you know, what is your greatest struggle that you found good leadership skills to be the solution for? Um, this is interesting. And so you know, the, there's so many things that come to mind that I'm almost like, okay, which vector do I go down here? And uh, we'll see where we end up, Justin. So you actually you caught me with one where I'm like, okay, well, greatest struggle that I found good leadership skills to be. Um, let's let's talk about the unknown, right? Because the unknown is an interesting, uh, well, I'm just introducing it now. And so what do I mean by the unknown? When you're in a, a startup atmosphere, which is the atmosphere that I've worked in for the past six and a half years now, uh, there is an element of you know, Donald Rumsfeld gets, it's actually like an Eisenhower matrix, but Donald Rumsfeld made it famous because he made it sound so uh it, it made it sound so ridiculous in a press conference, but you have like known knowns and then you have unknown unknowns, right? Oh, yeah. And within a startup, you have, um, of course, known knowns, right? Like I today have to do this uh, post on Instagram because I am a creator and I need more traction on my, my, uh, my business. That could be a known known. That's like a routine. But within the elements of, of a business, there's likely a lot of things that you do not know. And in certain cases, you do not know what you do not know. <laughs> and so uh, when looking at how, uh, and, and so that could bring about a lot of frustration, right? And so when I initially came at, about this uh, from a startup point of view, I, I was looking at and saying, okay, I don't know this. So I have to read every single freaking book on this in order to build some sort of knowledge base, et cetera. And to a certain extent, that is true. When you're going out and hiring consultants, it's certainly helpful to have some sort of background in whatever they're doing, because otherwise you can be led astray. They can take you down a path that you don't really like. You can uh, end up with them ruining your brand, for instance. Uh, and you may not have any sort of match whatsoever. Uh, and so doing some level of reading in that is, is certainly appropriate. But when it comes to, uh, you know, this in the broader sense of the startup, it's getting comfortable again with that delegation, again, with that, that trust, that faith, if you will, in another individual or a series of individuals to help them deliver uh, or be your left tackle using the NFL analogy, right? So they'd be their left tackle to protect you from those unknowns because you like the unknown is the blind side or what comes in and wipes you out. So right now that could be, uh, the world is talking about chat GPT, right? And so if you are uh, sitting in some sort of industry like, um, you're, for instance, a blog writer. There is an existential threat out there uh, in the form of chat GPT. Now, the best blog writers will certainly have jobs still, but if you're not aware of these tools, 
and how you can use them as a strength. Or um, if you're a manufacturer and you're unwilling to uh, acquiesce to certain manufacturing, traditional manufacturing contract demands, you know, that could be an existential threat. And so where leadership has actually helped me a lot in sort of these particular areas is in dealing with those unknowns that I don't necessarily know what's going to come my way. That could be an existential threat to prescriptions, to our nonprofit, et cetera. But uh, I'm certainly looking at AI and saying, all right, rather than treating it as an existential threat, how can I use this tool and create leverage? Right. And so those are really how we, uh, how I particularly look at those unknowns and using leadership um, in that delegation process to help create something that otherwise wouldn't have been possible. I think uh, what you, what you just said was uh, it very much touched on um, the, the Kodak story and the downfall of Kodak. The fact that, you know, they almost got given this new ingredients of the digital camera and they refused it. It's, it's the same as blockbuster and Netflix, you know, it's the same thing here with, these existential Ta- taxis and Uber, right? Like there's a whole right. bunch of other things, right? Yeah, absolutely. And and it comes back down to um, adaptation and a perspective of the leadership to be able to see things as new ingredients to cook with. Yeah. You know, like, oh, I've got these ingredients. What recipe can I make rather than, you know, ignore the change or try to suppress the change as well. I mean, I remember you mentioned Tim Ferriss. I remember when Tim Ferriss did his first book, that was through Amazon Publishing, and oh, people be- shat on it, right? It was oh, just like wow, absolutely. people hated it, and it and was the I think it was the Four Hour Body too, right? Chef was a Four Hour Chef, Four Hour Chef, okay, yeah, and um, yeah, it was hilarious because he was banned. It was like the most banned book in America from like all the traditional kind of like bookstores, like Barnes and Noble or whatever, and it, it was incredible for me to to kind of see that that this old dinosaur of a publishing industry was refusing that. They were almost like refusing the future and trying to suppress it to a large degree. And now, of course, Amazon Publishing is one of the biggest publishing houses and and they have to move on with that. As a matter of fact, I would argue that Amazon bookstores functioned much better than traditional bookstores. Like, have you ever been in an Amazon bookstore? I have. I have. uh, New York City Park Avenue, right across from the Empire State Building, actually. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So a big one, I guess? Yeah, bigger. Yeah. Because, uh, yeah, the one that, that I've been in, uh, I mean, they're all closed down now, but uh, yeah. it was beautiful. I was like, this is the, a great way. This is almost like augmented reality ahead of its time because all of the the, the data from tech was put up on display in, in a real world setting. And it was incredible yeah. for me. You know, and I found so many books that I'm like, I want to buy this book and this book and this book. And, you know, um, yeah. I mean, if you if you have time to go digging, go to a traditional bookstore. But Let's come back to the main point. The main and point it's, is- it's just interesting because all what we're touching on here is like fear-based leadership versus yes. faith-based leadership, right? Yes. And so, uh, and I don't know if the cool kids have come up with that phrase before, but, uh, you know, fear-based leadership it, to me is like, okay, there's something out here that's going to threaten me. Let me try and squash it. Uh, versus faith-based leadership is like, all right, there's chat GPT out here. There's all this funky stuff. And I know blockchain is kind of going through its winter right now uh, in mm-hmm. certain certain chains in particular, but there's a technology there that is fundamentally useful to society. And so rather than me saying, uh, you know, Bitcoin is going to die, 
well, why don't I study it a little, a little bit more and try and figure out, okay, if this was useful to our organization or if this could be useful to our organization. So it's, it's really operating out of that fear or operating without that fear um, and operating in that faith-based state. And faith is, you know, the trust that there's some sort of power that will help guide you. And, and I'm not trying to get all, all woo here, but it's faith in your people. It's faith in uh, your your relationship that there is something as well. in, in yeah. your skills, in your ability to, um, you know, find a good hobby, et cetera. Like it's faith in all of that, that can help guide you through these times, which I mean, you take a look at the United States right now, and there's a certain subset of the population, uh, lower middle class white individuals who are particularly behaving out of fear, right? And so it's a um, it's a, a fractal that take place that takes places at takes place, sorry, at all levels of society, and you can see it almost everywhere you look now, fear-based versus faith-based. And it's something that um, I pay a lot of attention to, certainly. I like that way of saying it, the fear-based versus faith-based. There's a, there's a particular element of this as well. Like you said, not to get woo-woo or, or something like that, but um, within core energy coaching, which is my, my training, um, you know, they talk about different energy levels, which is a woo-woo way to say focused attention. So, you know, level one is that you're focused on being a victim. You're focused on like, oh, woe is me. What am I going to do about this? Oh, no one's going to. And then no one's going to help me. Everybody should yeah, help me. I exactly. need help. Blah, 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 blah. Yeah, I'm the butt of the, the joke of the, the, you know, you know, the universe's joke. Um, mm -hmm. You know, level two, level three, we go up to level seven. And one of my favorite questions is really the level five question, which is what is the opportunity here? Mm -hmm. Right. What is the opportunity here? And, uh, level six's question is really, how do I collaborate? Who can I collaborate mm -hmm. with in this opportunity as well? So how can we grow from this, this particular thing too? Um, I, do, I do think that uh, there is this concept of making plans, but not necessarily executing. I mean, you know, like early adaptation to, for example, cryptocurrency and Bitcoin. Um, you know, it's the idea of like, it's, it's the new frontier, which also means that it's wild. Which yeah. also means that it's untamed, it's unregulated, it's all, all and you know, protecting yourself. Like you, like you're saying, there's a lot of risk mitigation that needs to go into thinking about that type of stuff and that directionality, mm -hmm. which is which is important. But um, one of the greatest things that uh, so I'm working on a, a video at the moment that talks about this, where you're defined by your top, let's say your top uh, tragedies that occur to you, your your most traumatic events to you will have shown you more of who you are or given you instincts or set in motion a certain pathway that has defined you much more than anything you could have chosen for yourself, really. Mm -hmm. um, and that's not to negate your natural instincts or your natural um, things that you're attracted to, that you enjoy, your pleasures, your traits, talents, knowledge, whatever. But to say that um, the traumatic events tend to define us a lot more. Oh, yeah. So, Absolutely. I think there's, and as you're saying that, I'm like, oh shit, is he going to ask me this question? Uh, because I'm like, <laughs> because I'm like, all right, traumatic events. I haven't had that traumatic. Yeah, I could probably dig up a couple and then like the, the floodgates start opening. Right. And so it's, yeah. 
Uh, you're certainly right. And I, I can think of at least three of them right now where it's uh, kind of led to, and, and this is something I've worked on a lot in the past six years is uh, sort of, I wouldn't say necessary fear-based uh, actions, but more of a, okay, I'm just going to prove them wrong actions. Mm -hmm. uh, and so there's certainly elements of that, but I'm not sure you want to get into being my psychotherapist today, Justin. So <laughs> um, we, can, we can certainly go there if you want. I'm an open book, but that's okay. <laughs> Well, I think I think it, um, uh, particularly in my knowledge of you, I think I do want to raise one point, which is I know that you had a health scare. Yep. And I wanted to ask you about that, about how have you now prioritized self-care because of that traumatic event? How has that traumatic event with regard to your health then led you and impacted your your your, your self-care, which then, and like, what is the, uh, you know, cascade effect onto your leadership or onto your professional life? Okay. So, you know, hindsight's always twenty twenty in these things, right? But since I've already disclosed this in a TED talk, I've already disclosed this in pretty much every, uh, <laughs> every way possible. Let's first give some people the insight of that health scare. Right. So just to give you some background on me, uh, I had this interesting dichotomy growing up where my mother was a yoga teacher. My dad was in operations and finance and operations and finance is all of that shit that nobody wants to do and never wants to touch. Um, but he ran that. And so I had this kind of strict disciplinarian, incredibly meticulous person. Uh, and I also had my mother, who was an early adopter of meditation when it came to the United States, like she was reading books by the Dalai Lama before it was cool to do so, right? And so uh, from a very young age, I had this uh, idea drilled into my head that health can lead to higher levels of performance. And so I, you know, I saw this come through in calculus tests in college where I was so stressed out and then I do three breaths and like, boom, you know, DV over DT actually made sense to me. But in other ways, you know, I was uh, connecting the dots in that health, uh, there was a certain return on health that because I worked in finance, I could actually calculate it uh, in the sense that this is how much money I would spend on health in a year. And this is how much my bonus would grow. And uh, what I defined health as at that point was actually part of the, the overall issue. So I alluded to this earlier, that health to me at that time was how to work more, sleep less and look good naked. Now, Justin, I, I know a lot about you and you can see at least two, two issues uh, there, if not all three, in terms of how I was defining health, right? Uh, and so in the run-ups to my 30th birthday, I was just, uh, I was, had accomplished everything I wanted to in finance at a fairly young age. So I decided to leave. And because I had this really cool insurance package uh, before leaving, I decided to get everything tested, which included a cardiac CT scan for calcium. And I found out that I had atherosclerosis in um, an area of your heart, which is uh, profoundly nicknamed the widow maker. Um, and so this was when you start talking about tragedies and stuff, that was the first one that actually came to mind. Um, there are probably two previously that shaped me more, uh, but were sort of less um, existential in terms of threats, right? And so when somebody tells you you have atherosclerosis, which is just a narrowing of your arteries, 
um, it kind of throws you for a loop because cardiovascular disease is the single uh, number one uh, preventable cause of death worldwide, right? And so I, I, initially I was like, you know, and Justin, you didn't tell me if I can curse, but I'm going to curse. I was like, what the fuck? You know, I was doing all of this stuff, right? Like my body fat was sub 10%. I was this elite level CrossFit athlete. Like I was doing everything right. I was following, you know, diets. I was following every diet there was, frankly, sometimes with, with no sort of rhyme or reason to it. And, uh, you know, I was in, you know, the quantified self groups and I was, you know, trying to figure out again, that analysis of, uh, work hard, sleep less, look good naked. Right. And so when that happened, I was like, well, shit got that wrong. Um, and you know, the first thing, and I have nothing against, uh, cardiologists. In fact, I know a lot of very, very good ones. It's just the one that I particularly went to had this viewpoint that, um, I, I had a like I needed a statin, but my cholesterol wasn't bad, and so I took the statin, and it led to um, chest pains or angina. Uh, and so I stopped taking the statin, that went away, and I began to look into a lot of this data that I was accumulating over the years. You know, I was going for that physical every year. Okay, what did I know about that? How, I you know what did I miss in this entire process that led to um, that led to this event? And so when you start uh, really constructing health or deconstructing health, there's a lot of elements that I was missing. So from the age of 18 to 30, I slept between four and six hours a night. Uh, wow. Maybe actually is probably closer to four. And, you know, I was traveling from the age of 25 to 30, uh, two to three times a week, I was changing time zones. That included five trips a year from Singapore to the United States, 12 trips a year at least to London, um, if not other places in continental Europe. And, uh, you know, I was, um, I didn't have anything that resembled a circadian rhythm. I was prescribed modafinil because of, not because of a nootropic benefits, although I later certainly used it for that, but I was be prescribe that because technically that is shift work, right? Because I am doing essentially night shift work because I have zero circadian rhythm. And so first things first, I look at, it, I'm like, okay, yeah, the sleep thing, it's kind of important. Right. And in mm -hmm. fact, uh, you know, I've regularly pulled all nighters from the age of like 25 to 30 that, that did happen quite often. And, um, and you start to learn things like, okay, an all-nighter in terms of your brainwave patterns is equivalent to about drinking about 12, 12 ounces of beers, right? And so that's quite a lot of alcohol, even for me when I was drinking a lot at that time. Uh, so speaking of drinking, I was also drinking a ton. And so it was uh, one of those things where, you know, the doctor asked you every single year, you know, how many drinks do you have in a week? And I was like, I don't know, question mark. Um, and, and I would, most of my job, was was social and so like when you get to a certain state in investment banking you're responsible for something like a budget right and you say to your boss like hey i'm gonna make x million euros a year uh for the company and a lot of that becomes a very social thing and you need people to get to, to like you and in my case i was very very good at that uh and wow. that required me to, in that time I was drinking quite a bit. So it was like Negroni's red wine. I knew my way around a wine list better than most people that were double my age. And it was quite an interesting time and, in, you know, to, uh, like area to be in. Uh, but again, like 
this thing called, I actually had a t-shirt by the way, that said the liver is evil and must be punished. Um, and, and it's funny because now you come to realize like, oh yeah, that liver thing is actually quite important. But as I'm dissecting all of this, and since then I've given up drinking, I, there's far better molecules out there than ethanol. Uh, and then, you know, I've looked at, at my sleep. My sleep is now averaging about seven hours a night. And nice. one the one thing that took me the longest to come to, to have my little come to Jesus moment with was stress. And so why did stress actually become that issue? Because, um, because of another tragedy that happened when I was earlier in my life, like earlier in my life, I lost my brother in a competition barbecue. He was, he was three years old. I was six. Um, and it like tormented me for basically most of my life. Right. And since then I always had to be the best. And I, had this attitude that I would never let anybody see me sweat. Right. I would mm -hmm. never let anybody know that I was going through any sort of issues. Mm -hmm. And that of course leads to a lot of internal stress and all of this stuff. And so stress is really something that, that took me forever to, um, to come to the realization that, oh yeah, I should acknowledge that this thing exists. Um, and that there's probably a better way of working with it than I do. And so over the course of this, you kind of start to develop uh, frameworks and you get to, uh, you know, I came from a background of data. I love data. I really like, uh, like I, I get orgasms over large, large spreadsheets, right? <laughs> and so, you know, at first came, the first vector that I come in through is genetics and I kind of work my way down the omic structures into something called metabolomics. And, you know, metabolomics is this beautiful framework by which you're able to analyze your cells where they are now and where they have been. And it also allowed me to, give um, a framework by which all of the shit I was doing to myself, why was I doing it? Why was I taking all of these supplements? Because before that I was buying, you know, high doses of selenium because Tim Ferriss told me to do so, or I was doing a ketogenic diet because, you know, Dave Asprey said like, Hey, bulletproof coffee is great. In fact, you know, one cup of bulletproof coffee is good. Why don't I just drink an entire liter of it? Right. <laughs> so that was, that was my attitude. It was like the quintessential American approach to, to, health. It's like, if one is good, 10 must be better. Right. You're right. Yeah. <laughs> and so I ended up developing this, this framework, uh, with the help also, I have to give credit here to Dr. Ted, because a lot of it is, uh, me usurping his knowledge. Uh, and so it was, uh, I, I developed this framework by which, you know, I have a series of routines that put me into a particular state. I have a series of routines that also help me wind down, allow me to sleep at night. Um, I have a series of routines for learning. I've structured my day in a certain way to make sure that, you know, uh, to the extent that I can, the risk mitigation um, is there. So before it was like performance at all costs, right? Um, but I saw what happens when you take that attitude. And so now it's like, okay, how do we do uh, risk-adjusted returns on performance? And that involves a lot of these routines, which we can certainly get into here. Um, but that cascade has completely shifted my life, right? And so uh, I don't drink anymore. I certainly put uh, an emphasis on health. In fact, health is probably my core priority because without health, I will not be the same to my wife. I will not be the same to our team. I will not be the same to... Uh, anybody I interact with in the world. And so health is my core priority. And it's it just, 
it's a night and day shift, Justin. So like I can pause there and we can go down any particular direction that you want. But that cascade was more like a fucking tsunami. And, uh, <laughs> and that tsunami kind of wiped out what Boomer was before or this thing they call Boomer. And now there's something left over that is, um, I would say, a lot happier, a lot more present. Uh, maybe, you know, still at times, you know, still working just as hard, but probably a lot more effective. I, you know, I think that this is uh, the 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 takeaway that most people get from this idea as well is that, um, you know, by by branching out and coming back, we actually are more effective. You know, mm-hmm. so it's funny that you talked about sleep because I actually uh, there was a study that was done where they showed that after 16 hours myelin sheathing around the nerves in the and neurons in the brain actually starts breaking down. And so if you've been awake for 16 hours, all of a sudden your concentration goes down, your working memory ability is like halved, you mm-hmm. know, your ability to actually pay attention to something. So when people talk about all-nighters or studying all night, I'm like, you're literally wasting time. That's all that you're yeah. doing is wasting time. And so coming back to this concept of, you know, looking after yourself and coming back again, allows you to then do the same amount of work, but in a much compressed time frame or yeah. a higher quality of work in the same time frame, even. So, you know, again, like you were saying, there's there's very much, I think it's it is a Western mindset of, you know, I'm a hero if I do X, Y, and Z as well. You mm-hmm. know, and uh yeah, I love what you were saying about, you know, Tim Ferris, Dave Asprey, you know, the recommendations that's popular in the media. It's it's hilarious for me because I always come back to this idea of what are people measuring? What exactly are you measuring to say, I need this. And it's tough when you come into like, uh, you know, like metabolomics and everything, the the measurement stuff, you know, if we just talk about gut health as well, the measurements are very expensive tests that need to be interpreted by someone who knows what the hell they're doing. And not everybody can find that type of stuff. So um, exactly. But there are, there are, to a certain extent, there are basic principles, right? Like, yes. um, sleep, you know, sleep between seven and eight hours a night, eat real food. And what I mean by that is, you know, meat, fish, fruits, vegetables, some nuts, some oils. Um, and by oils, uh, I mean, probably av- avocado and olive oil, uh, you know, some butter, etc. Um, if you're going to cheat, like try and do like in general, if you're following an 80, 20 approach to this, you're probably going to be okay. In certain instances that may not work, um, autoimmune conditions, uh, working out, trying, you know, one of my, I don't know if they, cause Justin, you grew up in, I believe you grew up in South Africa, right? And so, yes, you know, it's, I, I don't know how they, they teach in South Africa, but we used to have this class called health in we only had it in like freshman year and junior year in high school. And I don't really understand why, um, but my health teacher, because this might actually be the most important class that you take. Uh, and my health teacher in 11th grade said, if you find a way to sweat every day, you're probably going to be okay. Um, I think that is a very simple uh, people, people like simplicity, right? And so if you want a simple sentence to keep in the back of your head, that's probably a good one. Um, of course, there's, you know, once you start getting into the realms and domains of performance, there's different approaches to this that can work a little bit better. Uh, but that's, you know, what we're trying to do here is describe something for, you know, the 80% of the world. And, you know, there are just basic principles there. And what I do like about measurement and measurement can be as simple as keeping a spreadsheet, which I certainly did for a 
over a decade, right? Just keeping a spreadsheet and trying to make kind of correlations um, between behaviors and outcomes, right? And so that that could be a very simple way to get started. But if you don't have a measure measurement tool, or let me put it this way, measurement will accelerate the, uh, the slope uh, in terms of how fast you're able to adapt a habit, right? Uh, what I... I find funny about, and don't get me wrong, a lot of these influencer types are my friends, right? And I know them and, you know, understanding their motivations. I understand where, why they talk about certain products and they kind of switch products all the time. Look, that's their business. And I get that, but not everybody listening to them understands that this is how they're um, making a living. And, you know, what you also need to do is to understand, okay, which one of these is, is going to make a difference for me. And there's really no way to do that other than measurement. And so like foundationally measurement can cost you a fortune or you can, uh, and I spend, I spend like a couple thousand dollars a year on measuring myself. Right. And so like, I, I, I do that because I find an immense amount of value in it, but the, uh, but it can also just be as simple as opening Google Sheets and Google Sheets for for now, at least, is free. Yeah, I hear you on that. Yeah. yeah, I've got a couple of Google Sheets open on my computer right now with of measuring course. all kinds of things. So, yeah, yeah. I, you know, you're speaking to the, you know, the tribe right here. Yeah. But and so Sheets is converted already. I mean, you know, we're, we're there, man. We're in we're in uh, measurement land. Mm-hmm. Um, so how do you find that this affects, um, you know, parts of your leadership as well? I mean, do you, um, you know, taking it back to the health angle, like how much do you promote, I don't know, health within your team or do, do, is this a conversation that you have with them or you leave it to them or? Oh, you know, no, I, much- I think, well, internally. So let, let me give you a little bit of perspective here. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, let's kind of go into, um, what, I'm involved in a handful of businesses, but let's talk about the ones that take 80 to 90% of my time. Uh, so we have a, a nonprofit called Health Optimization Medicine and Practice. And there, uh, what we teach doctors and practitioners uh, how to do is how to optimize for health rather than treat disease. There, it's an online learning management framework. Um, and there, what we are teaching people predominantly is nutrient and hormone balancing. Uh, because nutrient hormone balancing takes about three to six months, uh, you in the best and most diligent of people, uh, we created a product line called Transcriptions. And so if you think about that, that's the lay of the land by which I operate in most of the time. And so it would be absolutely hypocritical of me uh, to, uh, to not expect or to promote that in our team. Right. And so when we start talking about uh, areas like sleep, areas like uh, taking care of yourself, this is usually how we open up most of our conversations as a team is, you know, how are you doing? How are you, Justin, doing today? And I don't necessarily mean like what's your throughput or what's your output today in terms of how many boxes did you check off your to do list? What I'm asking there is, are you sleeping okay? Are, you know, I don't necessarily ask this of everybody on the team, but like, are you pooping well? Are you getting enough sun? Are you drinking enough water? You know, all of these kind of fundamental basics are core to ensuring that, you know, this person on 
the other Zoom because we're a distributed team is is okay. You know, I want to know all about you. Are you okay? Is your environment okay? Are your relationships okay? So it's incredibly important. And in many ways, it's actually this whole uh, focus on health as, as the core, if you will, um, has actually made me much more human centric in a way. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is I can be very utilitarian and in the sense that like, if the person is, um, it, maybe I'll explain this in the context of leadership, right? So when I start working with somebody, there's like this wide playing field. And we talked about guardrails in the context of this conversation, right? Like the guardrails, when I start working with somebody, um, particularly if they start working with our team, the guardrails are usually pretty wide because that goes back to what I said earlier about, I don't know what I don't know. And Usually we're engaging somebody because we want to hire good people to tell us what to do. That's an old Steve Jobs saying, right? And <laughs> so uh, like we want to hire good people to tell us what to do. And we really, you know, as that person may or may not, uh, if that person is unable to deliver, those guardrails start to shrink, shrink, shrink. And eventually it kind of, if, if I have to micromanage somebody now, it becomes more of a, usually when I get to the stage of having to micromanage somebody, it usually means they have to like, it's just not the right fit. Right. And yeah. it could be that they just, and usually it's the case that it's just not a match with the team. Right. And it's nothing to do. I mean, it does have something to do with them, of course, but it may just be culturally not the right fit. So um, it's made me much more human centric in that, I'm driven to understand what is behind the individual that is causing um, the outcomes that you see. And so, you know, okay. whether it's, whether it's, um, you know, lack of sleep issues with the family, whatever um, has overloaded themselves with side projects. I want to understand that person more. And so health um, and that particular perspective on health, has allowed me to become much more human centric rather than outcome centric. And so, uh, because if we then go uh, from that particular health outwards angle, what that allows us to do is, uh, I mean, selfishly, you are going to produce a better performer if their health is good, if their health is taken care of. And so, you know, that's not the reason why I necessarily do it anymore, but it's, just ensuring that the person has what they need in terms of food, drink, water, all that stuff uh, in order to produce a level of performance that, uh, that is good, right? And so there is somewhat of a utilitarian approach to it, but it's more focused around, uh, it's now made me more human-centric, certainly. That's amazing. You know, yeah, you sparked, uh, when, when I lived in Indonesia, the one bus that I had, um, was literally that where he was focused on the health of his employees to the point where like the one day I was sick and you know, you get Indonesian food and you, and you're a foreigner, it doesn't necessarily sit too well. Uh, dude, I love I, Indonesian food is my, one of my favorites. I spent the better part of most of those six years in Singapore in Jakarta. So it's, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's where I was as well. So I remember our first conversation was talking about yeah, Jakarta. Yeah. And um, yeah, you know, you know, it's like where you buy like street food, nasi goreng and, 
and and then of course it just explodes your stomach. And this um, this boss then you know would send like a package to your house or you know your apartment or whatever with like you know little probiotic yogurts or things like that to feel better, some rice and some food because he knows that you're not leaving the house as well. Yeah. But yeah. his investment in your health was literally like cool. Get back to work when you're, when you're feeling better. And so let's get you feeling better as fast as possible as well. Of course. And that, of course. that, and, and you know, like you could look at it from the side of like, Oh, this, this person's trying to manipulate me versus the other side of like, this person actually cares about my health. Yeah. Which is le- legitimate. And yeah. So he was fantastic. And he was such a, such a great guy. And I think that that human side of it, of understanding your, your people, your team creates, you know, you to be a better leader as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned culture as well. It's not a culture fit. And it's funny because that's our next topic. And so I wanted to ask you about this from both sides of the coin, which sure. is side number one is I know you're an international person. You travel a lot, but you also are an American who's currently living in the Netherlands, mm-hmm. which is, you know, one part of it. And then, you know, you've also talked about potentially moving to New Zealand where your wife's from. So there's, there's all kinds of things there about being an international person. How does living across cultures and your exposure to many different cultures across the globe, obviously you mentioned Singapore, Southeast Asia, how does that affect your leadership? How has that changed your leadership style? Um, it's interesting because in many ways, like we talked about the health scare and I called it a tsunami in terms of how it changed me and my leadership style. Um, the, other aspect of this equation is probably the living abroad thing, right? And so just to give, again, the history here. So in college by accident, I ended up in college is synonymous with the term university, which if you are outside of the United States, people use the term university. Um, but if you're inside the United States, it's college, right? And so um, in university, I had the opportunity by accident to study in Singapore. Um, during that time, I went to nine different countries, one of which was uh, had like a profound impact on just sort of how I view the world and I was walking through Cambodia. Um, I was in Siem Reap when they had at that time, I believe, and I don't, I haven't actually confirmed whether or not this is true. So if there's somebody on Reddit who can verify this, don't hate on me for saying this if I'm wrong. But um, at that time, I believe they just got their first stoplight, right? And I remember walking through Siem Reap and going through the various temples and you have Angkor Wat, Tanalot, or Tana, Taprom, sorry, Tanalots in Bali. Um, and you're going through these various temples and you're like, oh, wow. And you get greeted by these villages of just young kids that just are so, so happy. Um, and you're just sort of like, how are they happy? They're so poor. All of, <laughs> all of this question. Like, like in, in my mind, I'm, I'm like stressing out about how to get straight A's or in that time just pass my class. Uh, or like how to get a job in investment banking was my main sort of primary inquiry. And meanwhile, this one, like this little girl who's probably all of five years old makes a dollar a month, maybe at that time, um, is coming up to you and just has this huge smile on their face. Right. And so, you know, seeing that and then the actual country of Cambodia, uh, where, you know, because of the Khmer Rouge and uh, Pol Pot and the history there, there's an entire generation of people that is just missing 
right? And so you have a gap between, at, at that time, you had a gap between the ages of like 30 and 70. There was just almost no one available. And then coming upon one of the killing fields and um, outside of Siem Reap, and, you know, I didn't appreciate like the magnitude of it at the time because, you know, uh, the cameras killed, I, I don't know how many people, right? But it was certainly a lot. Uh, but you go to one of these killing fields and you see, um, just all of this buildup of skulls, et cetera. And they're still there and th they show them to tourists because, you know, you don't want to repeat history. Right. And, um, you know, that kind of opens your mind to, you know, people living different, um, lives than you. And so it allows you to kind of shift your perspective a little bit. Also in that whole experience, you know, after graduating university, I moved to Singapore and, since living in Singapore, I've been to well over 65 countries um, and have had experience in doing business in places like Japan, um, in places like Thailand, in places like India, somewhat in China, um, and of course, across Europe too. And so um, what it's made, what like the the multiplier effect that it's allowed that's brought to leadership for me is this element of culture and cultural perspective, right? Um, we employ people in the Philippines. We, em I, I employ people in North Macedonia. Um, I employ people in, you know, various other jurisdictions, Ukraine, for instance, and all of those people have different, ways of working, different ways of living. And because I've now lived abroad most of my adult life, I've been abroad since I was 25, I'm now 37. And so I've been abroad for 12 years. I've only actually lived three years of my professional life in the United States, right? And I'm married to somebody who, is, uh, who was born in Seoul and grew up in Auckland, right? And so we have this interesting dynamic in our relationship. And so I think what it does is opens not just an element of compassion, because I think that could be misinterpreted as me saying I feel bad for them, because that's not it. Um, it's more of an element of, of just openness to learning how other people in other cultures work because I can tell you this one story like working in India is the most fascinating place to work. Uh, I remember the first time I go into a meeting in India and my boss, who is one of those three people who's left like an incremental impact on my life. Um, he didn't say anything to me and he did it deliberately when we were going into the meeting. And I went and gave like this presentation as to why this particular Indian company should go raise money in the debt capital markets. And the entire time, the guy's sitting there and shaking his head, right? And I had zero experience in India at this point other than probably reading Shantaram. And, you know, I, when he, the guy is like, okay, I gotta go to the bathroom. This is the Indian client. He goes to the bathroom and I turn to my boss and I'm like, dude, what the fuck am I doing wrong? And he's like, ah, white boy, you know, <laughs> welcome to India. Um, and, you know, what it does is it allows you to see that like different cultures put different, um, a different value set on, on business and how they do business. And so 
you know, China, a lot of it is about relationships. Same thing in, across most of Asia. It's a lot about re, uh, relationships, right? And so they'll do business with you in certain parts of Indonesia because they just like going to have a drink with you, right? Um, and so what I understand or, or what I understood about leadership and um, different ways of doing business was just an interjection of so many different perspectives so that when I go into a situation whereby, um, and I haven't really kind of formalized this thinking. So this is actually kind of stream of consciousness right now, but where I go by into a new situation where I'm meeting somebody who may be interviewing for a job with us, or uh, maybe joining our team, or maybe has joined our team and I am um, meeting them. I'm always open to the idea that they have a different way of of seeing the world and doing business and that their way may be better mine for a particular situation. And so it introduces an element of openness um, that is incredibly immensely valuable to me. I mean, I can't tell you how helpful it's been in building the stuff that I'm building now or, you know, other things. Uh, so yeah, that was, that was a long winded answer to your question, but I would say oh. probably I would actually put it above um, the cardiovascular event in terms of how it shaped my leadership. Wow. That much. That's, that's, yeah. that says a lot. I mean, yeah. you know, it's, it's particularly easy for me to say, you know, that knowing different cultures really opens you up because, you know, I've been abroad since I was 20, but I was raised in a country that's got 13 official languages. You know, I would say, you know, four major cultures, in it that are local. And then apart from that, you know, it's like the largest population of Indian people outside India, for example, mm -hmm. um, you know, so there's, there's, there's a lot of different cultures there and then moving abroad and traveling, you know, to all these different countries, I got to see exactly what you're talking about as well, which was incredible. And, and I take it for granted that other people, you know, have these perspectives or think in these ways that, um, they're not, they're not going to value or they're going to portray certain qualities as well. You know, like one of my favorites is the mindset that you don't, you don't do business with family. Don't yeah. mix business with pleasure. Well, that's not true in other cultures where they will, you know, hand their business down. The family is the entire, like you think about the Asian yeah. tycoon businesses, right? Like all of those are almost it's all entirely, it's almost entirely, I mean, not all of them because certain ones mm -hmm run in different ways, but it, a lot of it is nepotism, right? And, yeah. and, and because you can guarantee the relationship, you know, the relationship, you know, yep. yeah, and there's, there's a, yeah, and there's, there's consequences if that relationship is broken, mm -hmm. uh, you know, not just in work, but in familial matters as well. So no, and, and I'm not saying it's right or wrong or anything, but it's just a shade of humanity that, that yeah. exists in different shades in different places. And I do believe in a globalized shared cultural understanding where, you know, this work ethic productivity that's taken from, let's say, the U.S. But that's also put together with the kind of relationship basis that you see in, in some cultures. And that's put together with respect and a type of, um, you know, the type of respect-based cultures that you can see, like Japan. You, know, you yep. take an element out of that as well, where not everything is just about, you know, shut up and give me the down low, you know, but there's, there's time and effort that's put in to give um, a proper amount of respect to harmonize, which, which I think is, mm -hmm. is a big deal. So, okay. Um, well, I, I'm, I'm I, very, 
Go on. I mean, look, Justin, I think there's one thing I want to add there is that if you go back to my original definition of leadership is leadership is sort of the ability to produce something that otherwise would have not been there. In many ways, like you think of, you heard America called the melting pot, right? And so all of these different countries that I've been to, which I've been fortunate to go to, whether it's, you know, presenting in Kiev or like presenting in, um, in Riga, or I was actually in your uh, homeland last November, right? They all add to the, the mixture of this recipe that we're, we're calling me today, right? And so all of those experiences add to me, so it adds a different dynamic to conversation, to communication, uh, to alignment, to all of that stuff, because um, each and every one of those places has impacted me in such a way. Mm. Beautiful. I love that. So, uh, okay. So this, that was my culture question. Um, I want to ask you a question about business culture. Sure. A hundred percent. I hear this all the time where people talk about business culture and all oh, the culture. Oh, of Jesus, our yeah. How would you define uh, business culture? Yeah. It's funny because again, um, this, I, I do read the Harvard Business uh, Review. I read all of these journals um, because I do think that there is elements that I can take from them, the systems. Sometimes it's a little piece of information and I integrate it in what I do and it has a multiplier effect. But let's kind of look at a company as a whole, right? And so you have any sort of company um, and you know, a company in a legal sense has a fiduciary duty to um, to increase a return for shareholders, right? Uh, and that's assuming it's a for-profit company and a nonprofit, it's slightly different. But uh, so what does the company do um, to increase a return for shareholders? And we'll do like a widgets company, just as an example. The foreground of the company is... Um, the widgets that they produce, the the marketing and how they sell it, um, the technology systems that they're using, the people are uh, like the actual employees themselves. I'm not talking about culture just yet. Um, are, are the foreground of that company, the names, the trademarks, et cetera. And so the way I look at culture is the background and the background that stitches everything together. So these are the values, uh, the language, the interactions, the communication um, that the people make within the company. That's the culture. And so whereas you kind of look at products as that foreground, the culture is the background that interlaces everything. Mm. And so what, what would you say is going to be the biggest way that you found to influence, you know, business culture, work culture to... Uh, a positive place. <laughs> so positive, that assumes you want it to be a positive place, right? Um, okay. And so just, <laughs> just rem like remember, right? Uh, I don't want to take anything for granted because there are certain places where, uh, and I'm just making an assumption that uh, the whole purpose is to make XYZ owner um, 
wealthy and then people come in and they just do their job and they leave. And that might be the case. And that might be the culture for that company, right? Mm -hmm. uh, in many ways, uh, the banks in the late 90s, early 2000s, and I can speak to that because I worked in one, um, in mid 2000s even, uh, it was a culture of, of performance and it wasn't necessarily a positive one, right? Like everything was towards this element of ROI, right? And so ROI is return on investment. And so how do we increase return on investment? We need to go get more revenue, more sales. And how do we do that? Well, in certain cases, the answer was question mark, you go do it. Uh, and so that produces a certain level of culture, right? Uh, and so in terms of influence on culture, um, you know, what we've spent a lot of time on particularly in transcriptions is, is culture and, you know, kind of narrowing it down to terms of like how we want people to, to feel. And so the simplest way that we described it was fun pharma, right? Um, and fun pharma uh, for us, so we're not a pharmaceutical company, um, but what we have are similar principles in terms of product quality, in terms of rigor, in terms of, um, accuracy, precision dose, physician formulated pharmaceutical grade. Like that's all there, but we want to have fun while we're doing it. And so most of us don't like take ourselves seriously, right? I, I'm having this conversation with you and in many ways in the back of my mind, my monkey mind's running is like, okay, tell a joke now, Boomer, because this is getting a little serious. Um, but like, but like, you it's, can. You can absolutely do that yeah. And so, and so it's, um, and so you know, we spent a lot of time uh, among the leadership team in particular uh, with just sort of thinking about, okay, how do we want uh, people to experience uh, transcriptions, particularly when you're on the inside? And so, mm -hmm. and that, uh, th that phrase fun pharma kind of runs throughout the company. And so that's the ethos really. And, um, you know, we ensure that people are having a good time. They're being rewarded for their work. They're having a good time. They're being intellectually stimulated and challenged. And um, we do that through conversations and how you present yourself. It goes back to leadership, cre creating something that otherwise would not have, have been possible. How I present myself to you today also impacts um, how you may present yourself to the world, how um, somebody listening to this who may or may not work with me may come and approach our company and understand them. And so uh, that element of, of communication really helps uh, the culture and the activities that we do together um, in just sort of how we make sure to sprinkle in a, always. I mean, we have fun in everything that we do and we make sure that the, the tasks, like I remember when Ted, who really started the company and then brought me in, um, he at one point, and this was mid last year. And I think you and I had a conversation actually right before this, he asked me a question and is like, are we, having fun and I'm like ted uh, you no know. and you know that was when you know some shifts actually were made right and so is checking in on those values those core values if you will and so health is a core value to the company uh, fun is certainly one of them too and so an innovation as well and so are we able to check those core values um it allows us to ensure that that ethos gets passed through the organization Mm, that's, you know, um, when, when I have this, this conversation with, with most people, when we talk about defining work culture, it, it usually comes down to 
the values that the company mm -hmm. has, but in particular, the values that the company communicates through behavior, intentions, et cetera, not through words. Mm -hmm. And that, that's a, that's, I think that that's the important distinction to have there is that, you know, a company can have a list of values up on a wall and it means nothing because yeah. what they actually communicate is the opposite thing. You know, like one of the clients that I worked with, you know, he was like, oh, we're a company where, where I like everybody to, to have, you know, it's a democracy. We have our input. I'm like, and under stress. And he's like, oh, I, yeah, I take absolute control. And I'm like, so what you're communicating is it's okay in these times, but not in these times. I'm the boss. Which, yeah. which is opposite to what he wanted to put in place, you know? And so you align, this is an alignment exercise in some ways, right? And so you have your values, beliefs, behaviors, and attitudes, which I'm sure that is some sort of list that would come out of Harvard, right? Um, and that alignment exercise is an important one. And uh, generally speaking, you know, you can do this top down, you can do this bottom up, whatever you want, but it just needs to get done. And certainly it helps when you make sure like you have it not stomped into you because that is a sort of has negative dissonance to it, but you just make sure that it comes through in your daily communications, in uh, your interactions on email. And email is one of those things where I'm actually working on that. Right. And so how do you communicate uh, fun pharma in email, right? Uh, because, you know, sometimes I just want to fire an email off and be like, okay, can you handle this? Thank you. Um, and, you know, some, you have to put yourself in the other person's shoes. How would that land? How, um, what is their perspective? Can I add an emoji? Um, and I'm not an emojis person, but I can certainly do it because it helps align the, the brand, um, the culture, if you will. You know, it's hilarious that you say that because I'm literally messaging people and I think, you know, how are people going to perceive it if I message and I've got an emoji in there? But the thing is, is that that's part of a personality of like, look, business doesn't have to be boring or anything like yeah. that. It's very interesting. And the serious nature of things usually kills people more than anything else. So like, how do we inject some, how do we play a little bit more? But yeah. it could also then put you in the wrong footing if you haven't established that kind of culture first you know so yeah i totally see that yeah all right well i don't want to take up too much of your time we're coming up on time now but um it's been amazing to have you on <clears throat> the conversation has been fantastic so thank you very much before you leave um i always ask guests to uh to go through lists of the the top skills that they think leaders should have and how to how to do this now this is for subscribers only at the moment so, you know, if you're enjoying this conversation between Boomer and I, please subscribe to the Substack. If not, um, you know, if you do, you'll get the, uh, the, top, the top skills that Boomer recommends. Uh, if not, thank you very much for listening anyway. Uh, but this is where we part ways. Goodbye. Have a nice day. And uh, yeah, and we'll, we'll see you in the next episode. Thank you, everyone. Yeah. This was going to be cut out. I bring you. Bloopers, the doom music, and how anger shows up in the workday. Um, just very quickly, uh, your sound is breaking up. Is there anything on your end that's coming up? Oh, hey, you're back. Why are you back? Here? Can you hear me? Yes, perfectly. What the fuck is going oh, on? Oh, okay. Um, I don't know. Okay, dude. Uh, I'm in your perfectly is... capable and lovely hands. <laughs> this, is, this is what happened, okay? This is, this is literally what happened. Doom did a rebrand and made Doom Eternal or whatever, like two years, uh, sorry, about four years ago. 
and it was a mm-hmm. killer thing. And Mick Gordon, an Australian heavy metal artist, made the soundtrack for that, which was fucking amazing. He won an award for the soundtrack. And this soundtrack now has no vocals, but you've got all these other artists now putting their vocals on top of it and like singing like doom style songs over this. Interesting. And it is the hardest fucking metal that I've got in my selection. And I play it like at least once a day, at least it is just because I, I just see the doom guy, you know, do the doom slayer in my head. Send, me, like, a, send me a link to it when we're done, because I, I, it's not that I, I don't listen to metal too often because I tend to, I tend to like, and we can get into this if you want in terms of like my mornings or just sort of my general position in the world, I get hit with a lot of information and that uh, sometimes causes me to get angry or negative quickly. And so, you know, music can manipulate your state in both a positive way and a negative way. And, and in the case of me, just anything heavier than let's say Metallica, right. Which is not, I mean, you would know better than I, the continuum of heavy metal, but it doesn't necessarily put me in a good mindset. And so like, I have to, and it's unfortunate because I do enjoy some of that music, um, but I also just enjoy not being angry <laughs> because it does <laughs> narrow my, it narrows my uh, kind of out, outlook on the world. And as an entrepreneur, I think you have to have a certain outlook a lot of the time. To, to be, um, so, I mean, like we could also get into this, but like the, um, the personality test that I tend to run people through in the beginning to give me a sense of who they are, you get um, like, basically you get three triads of uh, negative emotions that motivate people. And so um, I'm part of a depression triad. There's a shame triad and there's an anger triad. And the anger triad tend to be the people who actually get shit done. Yeah. I mean, I would, uh, I I, I don't know the full extent of what an anger triad is, but anything that you can talk to the people that, that work with me, like they're, if I, I tend to not respond to messages in the morning just because if I respond first thing in the morning, it's like very short and very to the point. And to yeah. me, it's nothing, right? Like I'm just like, okay, let's just get this done. Go, go, go. Yeah, but yeah. to them, it might strike them in a way that um, is less than conducive for like cohesiveness of a team, right? 100%. So. And you know, it's quite interesting because this is exactly how I coach Lori. Um, so, you know, if we're going to put this in the podcast for people who don't know, Lori's my wife, Yeah, she's a type one and type ones are very much like, let's put aside emotion and let's get this job done. Yeah, Let's get it done right now. And so boom, 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 boom. And unfortunately the resulting effect is that it could come off that you don't care about the team or that you're unfeeling or things like that. And so, you know, leaders that are high in their type ones, uh, tend to be very direct, put aside feelings because there's a task that needs to be done. But that's what I'm saying is that there's an anger aspect to that as well, where um, if jobs aren't done well, yeah, yeah, anger comes out because you're like, what the hell are you doing? Are you yeah, it, yeah. exactly. Um, and part <laughs> of this is, you know, one of the elements of, of leadership that I think is important um, is commitment, right? And so commitment uh, to me looks a lot like doing what it takes to get the job done. And um, when you, I, I think a lot of my learning since leaving my previous industry has uh, been in how other people perceive work, 
right? Because uh, to other people, work is just a, a paycheck or work mm -hmm. is a means to an end, right? And for me, I, I mean, I used to have this funny saying that I would walk around the bank with saying like, work is my life and that is my balance. And to, to many um, people who hear that, they're like, okay, that's just weird. But I also don't practice work-life balance. It's more work-life integration, right? And so that in itself uh, makes me different from most people. And, uh, you know, one of the biggest learnings has been that, like, not everybody wants to uh, behave like an owner. Not everybody wants to put in the 60 hours or plus a week in order to get something done. And so uh, it, it's just learning to uh, communicate, use language across. And I know you uh, work a lot with the Enneagrams, right? Uh, I, I'm not as familiar with those, but... I think I've taken the test once actually, and you were probably the person that told me to take the test. Um, and it, it was, and I just know that there's a, there's a lot of um, differences in this world and that's not necessarily a bad thing. People all have their own place. Like not everybody can try to be Elon Musk, Steve Jobs, or even the CEO of the company. Right. It's just, mm -hmm. uh, there is room for, for everybody, but it's just learning how to, uh, be able to communicate and use language across those different uh, personality types, which has been a pretty interesting experience. 100%. Yeah, that's a <clears throat> mic drop right there. You know, the idea of communicating in the style of your intended audience and under times of pressure, having educated them to understand your communication style when you don't have time to think about, you know, your words or whatever, so that they know where it's coming from. So that's mm -hmm. a big deal. So that's amazing. I mean, and this is this is exactly what this podcast is about. It's about getting to like how to think about these aspects of leadership so that it's not just this one flavor fits all. So yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna rewind a little bit and I'm gonna ask you uh, rewind away. 